In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Revelation chapter 1 from verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the isle called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Sperna, to Pergamum and Thuatera, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the promises we read last week, that the blessing on the one who reads it, on those who hear it, and those who keep it. Thank you for your promise, Lord. Help us receive that promise this morning to hear and to keep these words that we're reading. May your Holy Spirit have the freedom to work in our hearts and minds as we go over this passage. We just ask you to do that work in us that that sharp two-edged sword does, Lord, in renewing our minds and helping us to see things as you see them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So um, we have the first eight verses. John's given us an introduction to the book, which was um, more kind of like a doxology than a greeting. We've seen that the first words of the book are unveiling Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. In other words, to reveal him. And I, w- I want to share a little more on what that means um, when we read that phrase, the revelation of Jesus. Remember the last time that the world saw him, the world, not his disciples, but the world saw him, he was hanging on a cross. Um, 
Isaiah says his body was marred beyond human likeness. Criminals on each side of him. But he appeared to his disciples in his resurrected body, at one time even 500 or more. But even in his resurrected body, his glory was veiled. Only Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It, it's helpful for us to get an idea of what the world was like uh, when John was writing this letter toward the end of that first century when this revelation was revealed to him. John was the last living apostle. All the other apostles had already been martyred. The Jews were persecuting the church. You see somewhere in the middle of that first century, they started to see the church as different from Judaism, not just a branch of Judaism, but totally different. And so they began to persecute the church. The temple had been destroyed. Before that, Nero had accused the Christians of starting the fire that burned a part of Rome, the part that he wanted to rebuild, by the way. <laughs> so we, uh, speculation is he had it burned, but blamed the Christians. They became the scapegoat. Christianity was now seen by Rome as different from Judaism, and so it was outlawed, like all other religions. There are Roman documents from that time that tell of how Christianity had spread to the towns and the villages and was said to be undermining the government and was blamed for natural disasters. The Christians were accused of everything from cannibalism to incest to revolutionary plots. For Christians, it was an exciting time to be alive because the church was growing rapidly but it was also a dangerous time to be alive because the next earthquake could come and mean that you'd be thrown to the lions. Tertullian complained that when anything goes wrong, Rome's response is to throw Christians to the lion. He jokingly adds that it'll be hard for that lion to eat so many people. In other words, Rome was underestimating the growth of Christianity. John the Beloved was captured, and according to church tradition, Rome attempted to boil him in oil. And when that didn't work and didn't kill him, they sent him in exile to the penal island of Patmos. And it was there on that island that he received this revelation. Now today in our world, the, the Muslims are going through a very similar thing as they have dreams and visions of Christ and become Christians, it can very well mean their death, executed for converting from Islam. But that was the world uh, when God saw fit to unveil the, the glory of the Son of God to John. We could read the revelation of Jesus as God gifting Jesus with the unveiling of his current glorified condition. Do you remember that one time in John, uh, Jesus, in, I believe it's John 17 when Jesus prayed, and now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Well, that's what God is showing John, that glory. We'll see him as he is. He's not that bloody, broken man, hanging, suffering, 
at the hands of men and under the wrath of God. Now he is the glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. And what an encouragement that had to be to John and to the church of that time, living under that persecution. And, and to the church ever since, because all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What a warning to the world and to those in the church who were indulging in wickedness. It's in this setting that John writes, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the isle, island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's not using his status as an apostle for his authority of this letter. You know, often the letters of Paul, Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's saying why he has the authority to, to uh, write the letter to them. Apostle means an uh, official representative of Jesus. But John doesn't use that title here. He's a fellow partner in tribulation and the kingdom. He's one of us. He suffers like we do. He is a brother because we're all a family in the Lord. And we all suffer rejection from the world because we don't belong to this world. As Jesus said, John is the one who patiently endures just like the rest of these believers at the time that are in Christ, just like us today. So please take note of this. If you have not had to patiently endure hardships as a believer, the time will come. If you're in Jesus, you will be persecuted for your faith in one way or another. And our response in Jesus is to patiently endure. Endure for a little while, so you obtain a better inheritance. We endure the consequences of following Christ, knowing that there is something better to come. This life is brief, as James said, just a mist, a mist that is here for a little bit and vanishes. And eternity, I would say, is a long, long time, but really there is no time. It's forever. In the letter to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus rewards them for keeping his word of patient endurance. Perhaps it's that word that came through the Apostle Paul, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. The reason John was on the island was because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If you're true to the word, and share the word and stand on the convictions that we receive from the word, you too will have to endure patiently. He was there because of the testimony of Jesus. The testimony is that word uh, in the, the Greek behind it is the word that we get our word martyr from. Another translation would be witness because of the witness of Jesus. Jesus witnessed to us the love of God, the very nature of God. It's such a powerful love and so undeserved that it calls us to respond with our all. 
Jesus' testimony is that he alone is Lord. And Rome didn't like that. Our flesh doesn't like that. Our culture doesn't like that. But we unapologetically say that this is his testimony. He is the king of kings. There's no other way to the Father but through him. There's no other life worth living but one in submission to him. If you don't like it, ask yourself why. Is it because your ego wants to remain in control? Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. There are four passages where John describes himself being in the spirit in Revelation and it kind of divides off the four sections of the book of Revelation. But picture John, he's dressed in rags. He's probably in a little, in a cave trying to get out of the, Son there on the island of Patmos, and knowing it's the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the death and, and the day that the Spirit descended on the 120 in the upper room, just see him there worshiping the Lord Jesus as he remembers things that Jesus said to him and the time that he spent with Jesus. And he gets caught up in worship. And suddenly there's this blast like a trumpet behind him. I, I can see him hitting his head on the top of the cave as he jumps to turn around to see what that noise is. And before he can turn, he hears the instruction saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Theatura, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea, an assignment but look at the one giving the assignment. John had to flash back to the Mount of Transfiguration. What does it mean that John was in the Spirit? Are we not always supposed to be in the Spirit? The opposite, of course, is being in the flesh, dominated by it. But even an apostle had to get in the Spirit to worship. Are you in the spirit this morning? What are you thinking about? That's one way, easy way to check if you are or you aren't, because when we're in the spirit, the Lord has our attention. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Now that sounds like the lampstand in the holy place of the temple. Remember that God described how to build that, gave the instructions to Moses and he gave it to his craftsmen and they, they built that and put it in the holy place where the priests ministered to the Lord. It was taken away as treasure when the Romans destroyed the temple. Its purpose was to give light to the priest who ministered to the Lord at the table of showbread and the altar of incense. But of course it had a rich significance. We saw the number of seven in the introduction, the seven spirits of God, which most likely represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We see in a few verses that the lampstands in this verse are the churches to whom the letters are written. 
In apocalyptic literature like Revelation, there, there's a lot of symbols and pictures. The lamp with the seven flames is also seen in another apocalyptic piece of literature, Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah's lampstand, which symbolized the presence of God in the temple, is fulfilled by the seven lampstands of Revelation, which symbolizes God's presence in the seven churches to whom John writes. Zechariah's two sons of oil, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David, are fulfilled in Jesus, who stands among the lampstands as God's presence in his church. Jesus himself fulfills the office of high priest and high king of Israel. The vision of the lampstand and the two olive trees in Zechariah guaranteed that God would empower the rebuilding of the temple. Similarly, John's vision of Jesus among the lampstands guarantees that God will accomplish his purpose of building the church. The rebuilding of the temple then foreshadowed Jesus building the church. So are you ready? Last week we said maybe during this study we'll have to put seat belts in the pew. Here is the unveiling of Jesus from verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So let's take it slowly and do our best to see what John saw. This being was in the midst of the lampstands. Where is Jesus right now? He's in the midst of the church. He's here among us. Lone Ranger Christian, hear this passage. If you wanna be where Jesus is speaking, and at work, you need to be in the church, the gathering of his people. And I'm not talking about a building or an organization. It's the gathering of true believers who know Jesus is Lord and the Lord of their lives. We're designed to function together. God establishes order. Yes, men create chaos and often are not in the spirit, but Jesus is found in the midst of the lampstands. If you've been hurt by a group of believers, get over it. I have too, most of us have, but it's not about us. It grows us, it matures us, it teaches us to consider others better than ourselves. We're not here to have somebody sympathize with us and agree with everything we say or think or believe. We're here to worship Jesus, amen? It's not about us, it's all about him. He's like 
the Son of Man. You'll notice how many times like is mentioned here. I think, I can't remember, I counted, I think six times. Because apocalyptic literature is all about symbolism and pictures. And so he ha has to use this word like because there's, to help us relate to it. And this language comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, now this is 600 years before Revelation was written, over 600 years. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve, that word is also translated worship, him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel saw him those six centuries before John did. He's one like a son of man. He has a human form. He's dressed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, golden holiness, glory. His hair is white as snow, which identifies Jesus with the Ancient of Days, described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. But it's his eyes that captivate me. They're like a flame of fire, piercing, revealing, loving, judging. Dare we look into them? Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 13 says, all are naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. His feet glow like refined bronze, symbol of justice, and his voice is like a waterfall. His right hand holds seven stars and a sharp double-edged sword is coming from his mouth. His face is shining like the sun on a clear day in all its brilliance. This is Jesus today and every day. He's not on a cross. He's not in a grave. He's risen. And he's more than alive. He is life. He speaks to us, and his words are that sharp two-edged sword discerning the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Verse 17 and 18, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Now in the book of Daniel, Daniel witnessed an angelic being in chapter 10 with similar features, and he, Daniel had the same reaction. He just fell on his face and had no strength. The interaction with the supernatural takes away our ability to even stand. Their touch strengthens the recipient to be able to receive the message that they've been sent to give. The necessary command is always, fear not. It's always, almost always the first words from an angel visiting a human, whether it's to Mary or to Daniel or to Abraham, the angels always began with 
fear not. Even John, who had witnessed the transfiguration, needed to hear it. They are Jesus' first words in this book. After reading the words of the book, we need to hear those words too. Fear not. And why can we fear not? Because of what he's done for us. Because he was the living one who died and now lives forevermore. Jesus follows John's description with his own self-description. John's gospel has a number of I am statements from Jesus. You're probably familiar with many of them. I am the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheepfold. I'm the resurrection and the life. Here, Jesus uses a description we saw in the last lesson from verse 8, which described God, the Father. Here, Jesus used that description and applies it to himself. They are both the first and the last. I've always thought of how ludicrous that would sound coming from anyone else's mouth. Can, can you imagine your neighbor telling you, I'm the first and the last? I was, and I am, and I will be. <laughs> you go, boy. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but when he says it, it provokes awe and wonder. The Alpha and the Omega declares himself to be the first and the last. There is nothing that escapes him. He sees all things of all time. He's the living one. He died and he is alive forevermore. Some in the Old Testament were raised from death, some in the New Testament raised by Jesus, but they all died again. When Jesus died, he conquered death. He took the keys of death and hell. Satan no longer holds that power of death over us because Jesus is victorious. Satan had to forfeit those keys to Jesus. And when God said that if you eat of the forbidden tree, you shall surely die, death became the lot of the human race. Satan took the claim to those keys. But when Jesus said, it is finished, he earned the right to give his righteousness to those he chose. And he took back those keys. Hallelujah. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Once again, we have this past, present, and future dimension because John is writing about Jesus who was and is and is to come. He's writing about the living one. The book covers what John had seen, the present and the future. Verse 20, and as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the symbolism is explained for us. The lampstands are seven churches that existed in Asia at the time. Because of the previous verse, some people believe the this speaks of church ages or periods of time that the church has existed. I think our problems are the same throughout history. 
because the heart of man is the same. We have the same problems as they had. We can see all the church problems and all the victories in the church of every era in these letters. And so it applies to us as well. Some of these people may be backslidden or misled, but if they're in Christ, they're part of the church. We even have unbelievers among us who haven't surrendered yet to the Lordship of Christ. And so we have the same problems that the church has had. We all are works in progress, amen? People point to the church problems as a reason not to attend a church, not to be part of a fellowship. But on the contrary, it confirms the doctrine of the fallen state of man. Every letter in the New Testament was addressed to problems in a church. We have to wait for heaven for perfection. If you find a perfect church, I say don't join it because it'll no longer be perfect. <laughs> in the meantime, we patiently endure as we grow in Christ and learn to love one another, warts and all. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches. Now there are a number of ideas about this meaning. I lean toward the use of historical information that would help us to interpret the expression. The early church partnered, patterned its worship service after the synagogue. The one who delivered the message on any given Sabbath, expanding on the passage that was read, was called the messenger. And the word in Greek is angelos. It's the same word for angels because angels are messengers. I believe the Lord was saying that on Sunday when the letter was read, the one to expound on the letter from Jesus was in the palm of his hand. Jesus would use the messenger to convey the letter purely and without personal agenda. God will see that his message gets through to his sheep. And I count on that because we're all flawed. But God is glorified by the beauty he creates from flawed instruments. It displays his greatness. Of course, it could be a heavenly being. That's the way the word is used in the rest of the book. And that's a wonderful thought as well, that each true church has an angel assigned to it. To the church, to the angel of the church in Sedona, right? The reason God anoints the messenger is because God loves his sheep. If my message to you comes with the anointing of the Holy Spirit and you hear from the Lord, it's because he loves you, not because I'm special. Oh, I can certainly get in the way and I can be more available to him, but the anointing on the message is because of his love for you. As the letter was read to each church, they were ready to listen intently because this isn't just John's opinion. It's from the eternal one, our glorious resurrected Lord. And that's how we should receive it as well. 
Imagine how this introduction to the letters that followed would have warned and encouraged the churches living in that day. And it should do the same for us today. It should really cause our ears to be open to what follows. We've seen in this passage the unveiled Jesus. What he will say is also an unveiling for it reveals his heart for the church, his bride. Are you ready to look into those eyes of fire? We start the letters next week, but you can read ahead if you dare. <laughs>